Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Power in Weakness. So turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Hope That Makes Courage Possible. As far as I know, this is a true story that comes from the American Civil War. It happened during the Battle of Bull Run, which was the opening battle in the Civil War. You know, it was a war that would go on for four years and bring the death of over 600,000 men. And eventually, I mean, by God's grace, it would bring an end to the scourge of slavery. But the Battle of Bull Run was a disaster for the Union side. You know, at the outset, it looked like the Union would win and that one battle might serve as the end of that war, would have ended quickly. And early on in the battle, as the Confederates seemed to be on their heels and and taking considerable losses, one Confederate soldier running from the lines came upon Confederate General Thomas Jonathan Jackson, and he said, all is lost. And General Jackson responded, if you think it, you'll keep the matter to yourself. He knew that report of loss and panic would turn the tide of battle far more than the enemy's advances. So as we study 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 10, we're going to notice a key phrase. It's found in verse 6, where Paul writes, so we are always of good courage. And then he repeats it again in verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage, he says. You know, facing persecution and threats and hunger and sometimes withering criticism, the apostle says he's always of good courage. Courage steadies him in the onslaught of the battle. But where does courage come from? You know, I've been told that when it comes to the battlefield, I mean, most men don't yet know whether they have it or not. And I would argue it's the same for spiritual conflict or when we're facing opposition to the spreading of the gospel. And so for us, as we view Paul's courage on the spiritual battlefield, I mean, we're well served to ask where his courage comes from. And as we will see, it rises out of the hope that he has in the gospel. The text before us is a text about life after death. You know, in the previous section of Scripture, Paul wrote about his assurance that his light and momentary affliction was earning for him an eternal weight in glory. And so, in this text, he now defines that glory. We could easily divide our text into three sections. We're going to see that verses 1 to 5 are going to describe Paul's confidence of what happens if he loses his life. So verses 6 to 9 describe Paul's courage in the present hour and why it is that he's compelled to carry on serving the Lord. And then, as we come to verse 10, the final verse in this section, it'll show us that the final end of the matter is that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So let's begin by describing the reason for Paul's confidence, and that's in verses 1 to 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed— We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. You know, a great many Christians are familiar with this passage. We have no doubt heard it read at Christian funerals. It's intended to give hope to the grieving, and it's very appropriate to read a passage at such a time. 
You know, but in truth, this passage was not written for funerals. Rather, it was written to encourage Christians who are in the heat of battle for their faith. And when we study it closely, we're going to spot two metaphors. And the first is a metaphor of a tent, contrasting that with a solid building. And and the second metaphor is the metaphor of clothing. So let's start with verse 1. If the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, says Paul. Of course, he's speaking about his own death. And interestingly enough, Paul compares his present existence to a tent. You know, I know there are some Bible teachers who argue that the image of a tent actually refers to the tabernacle of the Old Testament. I think personally that's too nuanced. We shouldn't as much as possible bring outside ideas into the text. I think the easiest way of seeing what Paul is saying is to remember that Paul himself was a tent maker and that was his trade. And he had no doubt made plenty of tents in his life. And indeed, I'm sure he sold a few as well. And he knew that tents by their very nature are not forever buildings. You know, they're easily torn down. It's not a permanent residence. It's quite the opposite. And so comparing our present life to a tent, it's really appropriate. I recently heard of a man who left his wife and family for another woman. And you know, one of the reasons he gave, he said his life was slipping away and he's looking for another great adventure. You know, had I been speaking to him, I would have asked him, hey, let me ask you a question. Leaving your wife and kids, do you think that's going to stop your life from slipping away? I'm pretty sure it's going to slip away regardless. See, there are millions of people who want to deny that our earthly existence should be compared to a tent. You know, one of the ways people tend to think about their mortality is that they think about it in terms of what they're going to leave behind. You know, every once in a while, I'll read obituaries in a newspaper, and I guess I read them because I think it gets perspective in my own head, but I also find it interesting to read what people say. They'll say things like, always remembered and never forgotten, or he made an impact on so many lives. Well, here's the truth. Even the most famous among us are soon going to be forgotten, never mind the average bloke. Those that are supposed to always remember will themselves soon be forgotten. No, no. The tent is easily taken down. It's an accurate metaphor for our lives in this earth. If you want a permanent building, you'll have to look for a house made in the heavens. Paul says it's not made by hands. He means to say human beings can't bring this about. It's God who gives eternal life. We don't. We have to rely on God for it. But here, before we move on, would you notice that in verse 1, Paul begins with the word if. If the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. So what does he mean by if? I mean, shouldn't he say since? Well, no, he shouldn't. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, using another metaphor, Paul says, we shall not all sleep. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15, he speaks about those who are alive at Christ's second coming. You know, Paul always lived his life in expectation that Christ may come before he dies. No, no, it's right for every single believer to say the same thing. If I die, not when I die. And none of us knows when the task of reaching the nations for Christ is done and when Christ returns. Very good. That sets the stage for what follows. If my earthly tent is torn down, even then I'm not going to fear I have an eternal house. Now, when we come to verses 2 to 4, Paul, at least at first, stays with the metaphor of the tent, but then, watch this, he moves to a second metaphor, and that's the metaphor of clothing. 
You know, it's curious how very smoothly he moves from one metaphor to the other. So look again at verses two and three. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on. See, that sounds like clothing. We may not be found naked. So did you notice the heavenly dwelling or the heavenly house suddenly becomes clothing? And then at this point, Paul says, but if indeed by putting on this heavenly dwelling, it might be possible that I might be found naked. So what can that mean? You know, there are a great many Bible teachers who believe that what Paul is speaking about here has been called the intermediate state. Here's how the argument goes. Notice that while we're in this tent, we groan. It speaks about pain and discomfort in this life. But the last word isn't our present struggle. It's in our longing for our heavenly dwelling. But then as we come to verse 3, Paul expresses an uncertainty. You know, verse 3 begins with the word, if indeed. And we noticed in verse 1, there was an if there. It's a conditional clause. If this tent is pulled down, if I die before Christ returns again. And then in verse 3, there's a second conditional clause. If in putting on my heavenly dwelling, I should then find out that I'm naked. Well, how so? See, we know that, that Paul expects that when Jesus returns, that first the dead in Christ rise when he returns, and then we who are alive will meet the Lord in the air. So then we receive our resurrection bodies. That is, we are clothed in our heavenly dwelling at the second coming. But what happens if I die before Christ returns? Well, I won't be able at that time to put on my heavenly dwelling. Won't I then be found naked? See, that idea fits well with verse 4. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So if you look at the text from the vantage point of the intermediate state, you might say, oh, I get it. The idea of an unclothed soul causes Paul to groan. Not only does he groan in this tent, he groans at the thought of being unclothed. That is, he groans at the thought of existence without a body until Jesus returns. So that's how some people understand that passage. Now, my view is that's not what Paul is communicating. I think that Paul is saying he's of good courage when he thinks about his death. So let's get back to that thought and understand why Paul says what he does. One way we want to walk with you in your Bible study is to provide helpful tools and resources. This month, as our free gift, we'd like to send you a unique Back to the Bible Canada Bible Note Caddy. Some might think this is a bit old school, but this small journal comes with aids to help you take important notes, highlight important verses or sections of study, and it comes with a limited Back to the Bible Canada pen. These are limited in number, but if this is a tool you'll find helpful, request your free Bible Note Caddy today. And just a reminder, we're praying for you. And we're also blessed to know ministry friends from across the country are also praying for this ministry. What an encouragement. So call us today to request your free Bible Note Caddy or send in your gift to support the Bible teaching ministries of Back to the Bible Canada at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The key to understanding our passage is to know what Paul means by being clothed 
and what he means by the possibility of being unclothed. See, the reason I don't think Paul's groaning at the idea of an intermediate state, it's because, well, look ahead at verse 8. We see that he would rather be away from the body and present with the Lord, he says. That is, even at this very moment, before Christ returns, I would rather be away from my body, and that means being present with the Lord. And, you know, furthermore, you know, in Philippians 1.21, that very famous verse, Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gay. No, no. Paul doesn't think dying before the Lord's return is a tragedy at all. He thinks it's gain. Indeed, he reinforces that two verses later, Philippians 1.23, where he emphatically states, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. It's better by far. So Paul is not groaning at the thought of dying and instantly going into the presence of Christ. Look, I know that the Bible gives us very few details about the intermediate state. We know that right now, the dead in Christ are awaiting the resurrection of Jesus, just as we are. They're waiting for their new body. And so the intermediate state, well, what is that like? So I'm aware of numerous theories, even well-reasoned theories based on good Bible study, but however we come out on that question, one thing's sure— Paul says the intermediate state is better by far. Well then, what does Paul mean here in 2 Corinthians when he says he doesn't want to be found naked? See, I think Paul is using the term naked in reference to verse 10, where he says we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. See, what if, thinks Paul, in that moment, I'm exposed naked at the judgment? So you might remember that in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15, Paul says that on the day of judgment, it's possible for someone to be saved, but all his works are burned up. He himself, says Paul, will be saved, but only as by fire, having done nothing of substance in building on the foundation of Christ. And Paul's saying, look, I have an eternal hope. When this tent is torn down, I have an eternal house. And then changing metaphors to the metaphor of clothing... I don't want to be there exposed, having wasted so much opportunity to give my life for the gospel. Rather, I want to be further clothed, he says. I want to, everything that is mortal, everything that was transitory, everything upon which I might have wasted my life to be swallowed up in the life to come. Now, that's Paul's confidence in serving Christ. What I am now doing, he says, has eternal significance. It's not just going to matter a hundred years from now. It's going to matter throughout all of eternity. I wonder if you've ever heard the expression, you know, you can never see a U-Haul trailer behind a hearse. And, and that is when we die, we leave everything behind. Technically, that's not exactly true. First Timothy 6.19 talks about storing up a treasure for ourselves in heaven. Now, I guess you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Why be naked, says Paul? There's a motivation. Okay, now let's move from Paul's confidence in his future hope, and let's examine how this leads to courage. 2 Corinthians 5, 6-9. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. 
If you look closely at this text, you're going to see that Paul gives two reasons for his courage, and then from that, he has a plan or a commitment that drives him forward. First reason for courage is his knowledge that while he lives in this world, he is, to allow me another metaphor, he is now living in exile. He's a man who belongs to a different country. The country that he now lives in is not his home. In comparison to his home, the one he now occupies, that country, well, it has at least two very significant drawbacks. The first is that he's away from the immediate visible presence of the Lord. And second, he now walks by faith and not by sight. In each case, there's nothing that holds him back in this country, this temporary life. So why does that lead to courage? Well, go ahead, says Paul, bring it on. Threaten me with death. All you're doing is sending me home. Now, the second reason Paul has courage is because he knows the advantages of leaving this earthly tent behind. And then having stated the matter as he has, Paul concludes this section on courage. Since all of this is so, he says, we make it our aim to please the Lord. So let me ask a most basic question. I mean, what's the alternative? I mean, think about it. What is the alternative? Oh, I I think you know some of the alternatives. I mean, many in our culture will say, so I make it my aim to please myself. I make it my aim to gain as much stuff of this world as I possibly can, or I make it my aim to gain as much popularity in this world as possible. I mean, you know, that my name might be applauded in this world. Many people make that their aim. So the real point is, everyone has an aim, don't they? I make it my aim. That's just the story of the human race. But Paul says, because of the courage that I have, I make it my aim to please the Lord knowing full well that in this land of exile, pleasing the Lord will not be pleasing to the cultures of men. And that, my dear friends, is the matter that's before all of us. I know most people in this world do not make it their aim to please the Lord. Living in this earthly and transitory tent, they work as hard as they can to forget that they're living in a tent at all. I once had a conversation with a man who actually told me he was 83 years old. I encountered him in a coffee shop, and I did because he saw that I was reading my Bible, and he came over to talk. He told me he used to be a Baptist, he said, and he said, I chucked my faith overboard. So I asked him why, and he said, well, didn't you know that Jesus was married? I I bet they didn't tell you that in your church. Well, he seemed so proud of his supposed knowledge. Well, I decided not to argue with what was clearly an argumentative man, so I simply said, sir, how old are you? And that's when he told me he was 83. And I said, I reckon you have fewer than a decade left before your death, and very soon now you're going to stand before the judgment of God. And he simply said, nonsense, and he walked out on me. That's it. How much we don't want to hear these things. So let's go to the last verse in our passage. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I know it's very easy to see this as a passage that might be universally applied. But the Greek construction of this sentence, verse 10, shows that Paul is addressing the Corinthian church. He's talking simply to believers here. He's not talking to the rest of the people of the world. We believers, he said, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, since this passage is dedicated to Christians, we know that this judgment is not the same as the great white throne judgment that awaits the whole world. 
You know, there it will be a different thing. But for believers, we have the assurance that the punishment for our sins was thrown onto Christ. That judgment doesn't await us any longer. Christ has been judged in our place. We are free. However, there is another judgment that awaits all believers. What kind of judgment is that? Look at our text. Paul speaks about that which is due us for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. Revelation 22 verse 12 says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense or my reward with me to repay each one for what he has done. That's not earning our salvation. You know, I think Kelvin said it well. He said, having thus received us in his favor, he graciously accepts our works also, and it is upon this undeserved acceptance that the reward depends. It is called the judgment of rewards upon which our earthly lives are judged. And that's why Paul has said, I'm of good courage. I make it my aim to please the Lord. I, I don't belong here. I'm now in exile. I long to stand before my king, not naked, but clothed with the things that I have done for the Lord in obedience to him. Time to get personal. Does that describe you? Are you clinging to life here and now as any coward might do? Or do you view your present life much like a tent? You're living in exile right now, but you're one who longs for his or her master's presence. Do you make it your goal in life to please the Lord, or are you content to please yourself while your earthly tent is slowly collapsing around your ears? How important it is to live on hope, I mean real hope, the kind of hope that makes courage possible and that makes faithfulness to our Lord possible as well. May the Lord grant us that. John, good question, I think, is, you know, because I think we struggle with it a bit ourselves, is, is wanting to be with Christ, but also enjoying what God has given us in this world. Is there a balance there? How do we deal with that? And I do think that when Paul says, you know, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, I mean, he, I think he expresses that balance. He, he wants to stay. He wants to uh, carry on in ministry. He loves the people that he ministers to and with, and he loves the mission that God has given him. I, I, there's nothing wrong with all of that. I think he is abounding in life. But he does say to die is better by far. And I think we need to continue to hold on to that. It is better to be with Christ than anything that we experience here. Put your hope in the world to come. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Power and Weakness, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. I wanted to share with you how blessed and encouraged we are that God is continuing to use this ministry to impact the spiritual lives of so many through faithful Bible teaching. Recently, we received these words of encouragement. Thank you for the great role you play in the lives of Christians around the world. Shauna wrote, your work has enriched the lives of countless people. And finally, May God continue to grow his army and kingdom through your work. You know, we're so grateful. Your efforts, your support of Bible teaching makes this ministry possible nationally and globally. This month, would you please consider supporting the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada across the country? Your gifts make this ministry possible. 
To learn more or to support this Bible teaching ministry with a financial gift, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.